Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our law firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with my clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Today, we will be exploring the significance of diversity and inclusive practices in the healthcare arena. Specifically, we will look at the issue of trans competence as it relates to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender patient community. To facilitate this discussion, we are honored to have with us Dr. Thomas Robertson, Chief Psychologist at Jackson Behavioral Health Hospital within the Jackson Health System. We should mention here that in April of this year, the Human Rights Campaign Foundation named all six Jackson Health System hospitals Healthcare Equality Index leaders in earning top marks for their policies and practices related to LGBT patients, their families, visitors, and employees for the sixth consecutive year. Congratulations, and thank you for joining us for this very important discussion, Dr. Robertson. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here with you today and happy to have this conversation. Great. So let's set this up a little bit. In a major joint study recently undertaken by the National Center for Transgender Equality and the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force entitled Injustice at Every Turn, a startling number of realities for members of the LGBT community in a variety of arenas, including healthcare, were made very clear. The data in this study and others demonstrate that transgender and gender nonconforming people disproportionately experience discrimination, harassment, and even violence with respect to accessing health care. To help frame our discussion, here are eight specific statistics of interest that I would like to share with our listeners. Although a determination of precise numbers in the transgender population remains a steep challenge, a 2014 survey indicates that some 700,000 U.S. adults are thought to have some degree of gender dysphoria. This is typically defined as a difference between the individual's expressed or experienced gender and the gender others would assign him or her. Almost one-fifth surveyed had been refused medical treatment because of their transgender or nonconforming status a little over one quarter reported that they had postponed seeking medical care when they were sick or injured due to discrimination. Almost half put off care due to their inability to pay. 50% of the sample reported having to teach their medical providers about transgender care. They are more than four times the national average to be infected with HIV. 25% admitted to drug and alcohol abuse to cope with the mistreatment they face. And lastly, an alarming 41% of respondents reported attempting suicide, a number that increases if medical rejection is in the mix. It is against this stark backdrop 
that I want to bring you in, Dr. Robertson, at this point. And, and before we get into some specific questions, please share your overall thoughts about these healthcare realities for members of the LGBT community. Well, those are startling statistics, aren't they? And very troubling ones, but certainly help us to understand that transgender patients have come in with greater levels of violence, greater levels of poverty, greater levels of substance use disorders, higher degrees of infection with HIV. And all of these, we feel, are related to some of the reasons that our transgender patients don't come in the first place to take care of basic health care needs because of the expectation of invalidation that they're afraid they'll find or experiences that they've actually had of rejection, of denial, of being ridiculed or, or simply looked at as though they were so other that the medical community didn't know what to do. So it's a it's a huge issue, and one of the ways we're trying to address it is exposure, teaching medical professionals, mental health care professionals more about something that the public assumes we already know something about, <laughs> but we right. don't teach enough of, sexuality. Sexuality, sexual orientation, gender expression, gender identity. The public expects that mental health professionals especially, but certainly medical professionals, are the experts at this. But when we really look at curricula in medical school, in residency, in psychology training, in, in all of the mental health professions, it's astonishingly small the number of actual hours that are relegated or that are given for curriculum or for supervising cases that apply directly to sexual orientation, gender, etc. So, um, right. And the research indicates that many healthcare providers are simply not prepared to treat transgendered patients, even those in the emergency rooms. For instance, a 2014 survey on emergency medicine residency programs in the U.S. showed that only 33% had incorporated LGBT health topics into their curricula. What are the implications of this data for meaningful and effective care for members of the transgender population, Dr. Robertson? Well, one of the initiatives and one of the reasons that we've been recognized by the Human Rights Foundation's HEI Index is our initiative to, as broadly as possible, help people become conversant with basic ideas of orientation, gender identity. I think we've we're we're reaching a tipping point if we haven't already passed it in the public at large being more thoughtful about, aware of these issues and in medicine and in mental health care we are trying to bring everyone up to kind of a baseline of understanding how to treat people with respect around identity. And we start with the idea that we don't have to know. We don't have to have all the answers, even though we don't want our transgender patients to have to teach us everything. But we don't have to know a lot of the particulars that people get hung up about. We treat people, not disorders. They're people. And we need to understand how they identify and who they are and what their histories are and what bodies they have. 
so that we can understand how to provide competent and respectful health care. Absolutely. Now, as we indicated, overt discrimination practices exist in the healthcare field for members yeah. of the transgender patient community. However, microaggressions, which are subtle but offensive comments, dismissals, or actions directed at a minority or socially marginalized group that are often unintentional or unconsciously reinforces a stereotype, also exist, don't they? And if they do, how do these negative micro-messaging acts present in this arena? Well, you know, let me give you a little self-introduction to answer that. I have all the trappings of white male privilege. I'm a 60-year-old white male, but I also happen to be a gay man who has experienced over a lifetime many of the same problems that we're addressing today. Mm. Bullying as a child, reluctance to avail myself of services, and stigma in mental health and in growing up in the profession at a time when being gay was still a considered a pathology. So I have some sensitivity to this idea that LGBT patients come in with kind of an automatic awareness, an automatic structure of looking to see whether the environment is safe. Is it safe? Is this an accepting place? Microaggressions are frequently based on not just subtly saying things that display ignorance, but a lack of kind of proactive ways in which we make the environment safe. We try to have the Human Rights Campaign logo, the HEI logo, here and there and incorporated into some of our visual cues to people. It could be as subtle as magazines or signs on the wall or symbols that an LGBT patient might recognize. The other prominent microaggressions are usually based on ignorance of how to talk to a person and and be okay not knowing and saying, how do you identify? If we were better, and we are getting better at collecting data on sexual orientation and gender identity at the uh, front desk, we would all become better sensitized to those kinds of microaggressions. And we are looking at a system-wide initiative to begin to collect that data up front in accordance with Institute of Medicine, Joint Commission, and other leaders in medicine who are recommending that everyone begin to do that. But microaggressions are very real. Absolutely. So what are your thoughts about inclusive and affirming healthcare practice initiatives that include micro-messaging as a specific module? Well, built into all of our training is, you know, the basic premise of really a kind of micro-messaging in putting cues in the environment, as I mentioned earlier, but also in a basic array of ways of speaking to people, the kinds of questions we ask at the front desk, and teaching people how to help put the patient in the leadership role. Right. So it's really becoming a part of your fabric. Exactly. 
Perfect. We're trying to get everyone up to speed. And I'll tell you, as, as someone who's participated in training here at the hospital, I've been one of the speakers at, at they call it Sex Week, Family Medicine Sponsors sexual training for the medical students at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, which is, you know, our partner here in the Jackson Health System, uh, with the goal of introducing students at an early time in training to the ways in which they will meet diverse patients. And one aspect of diversity is sexuality training. Very good. Now, Dr. Robertson, a major sticking point is the inability for many in the transgender community to obtain appropriate government-issued identity documents that correspond with their gender, especially since such documentation is linked to the ability for them to undergo surgery, often very expensive and financially inaccessible for large majorities of the transgender population. How do we align this issue with the goal to provide equal and respectful treatment to members of that community? It's a very interesting question. It touches on the the boundary between the provision of medical and mental health services and what I would call politics or the social world that we inhabit and the legal barriers to identity to gender congruent documents is part of the wider tipping point that I was mentioning earlier, the idea that it's not okay anymore when these stories show up of how someone was mistreated at an ER or humiliated on an inpatient unit. Um, It's not okay. And so there's a tipping point going on that I think will have effect politically in helping legislatures, governors, uh, local authorities begin to align policies with the needs of patients. Now, for the most part, when a patient comes in, we don't need to see legal documentation in order to treat that person. Even when it comes to most surgeries, we don't need the legal documentation that was sometimes required in the past, we don't require such things. And gender-affirming treatments, whether they are psychological counseling, hormone replacement, um, hormone therapy, transition services, all of that is provided um, or available in the Jackson Health System. Okay, very good. Now, how does a medical establishment go about integrating transgender-sensitive care into its professional standards? Well, you know, there are a number of organizations that I consider kind of my touchstones, leaders in the field that I use and reference in training. For instance, the WPATH, the World um, Professional Association for Transgender Health, is one. When I first came into training, WPATH was the organization that published standards of care that were based on worldwide recommendations. And at that time, way back in, well, this would be, I guess, the 80s, individuals, transgender individuals were required to spend a year in the other gender 
then right. called the opposite gender in a lifetime experience. And it was WPATH that published those standards. Today, WPATH and all of us have come to a new model of care, which is instead of being a gatekeeper, we're really an informed consent model where I assume that any patient that comes in has thought and researched and understood more about their body than I could ever learn in a few visits. Mm-hmm. And so we're no longer gatekeepers, but we do we are ready and available to provide informed consent. So WPATH has kept up with the times and is a leader. UCSF is a place that I trained when I came up in San Francisco. And UCF Center for Transgender Health is an incredible source of alignment for medical communities. The Gay Lesbian Medical Association is an alignment organization, as is the Joint Commission now, the Institute of Medicine, and the Endocrine Society. So those are all organizations that have worked very, very hard on with transgender populations to affect medicine and mental health care from day one in training to um, how we're out there in clinics treating people. Very good. Connected to that, what are your thoughts about how the profession can hold doctors and other health care professionals accountable for the provision of appropriate care of transgender and gender nonconforming patients? How do we do that as a practical matter, Dr. Robertson? Well, you know, in my experience, ethical alignment with the practice of medicine, with my practice as a psychologist, really isn't difficult to translate across the board to individuals. Again, we treat people first. We don't treat disorders. We treat bodies, yes. And, you know, some trans men, many trans men still have cervixes. So we need to be thoughtful about the body that this man inhabits or that this woman inhabits. But holding doctors accountable is really, to me, just about the ethics of care at a very individual human level. Respect, informed consent, confidentiality, inclusivity, And Jackson went through quite a bit to change its definition of what family is and what it means to be a very inclusive definition. And so we hold each other accountable to those very basic human domains of ethical behavior across the board. Very helpful. What are your thoughts around public and private insurance systems covering transgender-related care? Well, you know, most states regulate the insurance that can be provided within that state and hold insurance policies to certain standards of care. There are, I think, about 9, 10, 11 states and the District of Columbia that have issued directives to insurance companies within their borders that there may not be any discrepancies between care based on some person's identity status. So in other words, gender dysphoria would be as reimbursable as major depression or any other mental health diagnostic category. I came back to Florida 
about 20 months ago from New York State. I was at Columbia University, and Columbia was just introducing new insurance policies that covered employees for transitioning services, for very explicit transgender models of care, both for employees of the university and for the insurance that we offered students. And that is a growing movement in major private insurances. The public domain is much more difficult. Even comparing New York and Florida, there are major differences in the ways in which Medicaid is administered and the benefits that um, are accorded to Medicaid patients. They're much more generous in New York, and because it's an inclusive state, is more likely to cover some of the costs of, of transgender care. But Florida is still in a very difficult spot. So for private insurance systems, you're seeing a trend. Absolutely, we're seeing a trend. More and more of the Fortune 500 large companies are changing their policies to explicitly address transgender care and transitioning services. Now, going back to our microaggression, one way in which we can microaggress is to assume that everyone who's transgender is transitioning, and that's not the case. Many people have no desire to transition and are not on the binary between male and female. Their gender identity is something else, sometimes defined, sometimes undefined. Sometimes I'll say of someone that their gender identity is ambiguous, right. that it's in a state of flux. And so, of course, we use other terms like gender fluid or gender queer. So we are seeing a trend in the in private insurance. And I think the way these trends tend to go is that they influence each other and move in that direction. The public domain usually is slower to follow. Right. Absolutely. Now, the high rates of HIV infection, attempted suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, and smoking among transgender and gender nonconforming people are well documented. What are your thoughts regarding any special needs the profession has or should have about developing and providing transgender-sensitive health education, health care and recovery programs, for instance, and transgender-specific prevention programs? Well, when I think of, think of the domains that I actually work in, right now it's still difficult to, you know, we lump LGBT together, even though they're all quite different, and the L and the G go together than the T. Transgender issues and needs are different, but all of them share the need for recognition, validation, acceptance from the community. And I see a need for being very loud and very public about transgender-sensitive health education and care. One of my initiatives, it's it's just in the thinking stage, would be to have a designated resource center. Of course, we do have some in the community, but I mean within the Jackson Health System, to be a resource and dissemination point for referrals to all the various kinds of care that a transgender patient might need or want, and to provide community services 
so that there's a focal point for you know the the intersection of community mental and and medical health care because we do need transgender specific prevention programs we have yeah. uh, many smoking programs we have addiction programs and we need to be able to invite our transgender patients into those or to have specific groups that would make them feel comfortable. Absolutely. Now, what are the implications for health studies and other surveys of having gender identity as a distinct demographic category? Well, you know, uh, at the the medical record, the electronic medical record is now the way in which medicine is practiced. And if the medical record doesn't have basic identifiers like gender identity, like sexual orientation, then there's a tremendous amount of research that can never be done because we won't be able to parse out the individuals and the communities and the experiences because we don't have the data. So there is a huge push by the Joint Commission and the Human Rights Foundation have actually joined together and have issued some guidelines on two important initiatives. One is affirmative gender, um, transgender policies for an inpatient stay in a hospital. They've issued a model protocol. And another one for collecting sexual orientation and gender identity information right up front at the beginning so that we'll have that data and we'll be able to also affirm right from the first experience with a new patient that we're sensitive to those aspects of identity. Very good. In your opinion, Dr. Robertson, what does a health care system's comprehensive commitment to trans competence look like? Hmm. <laughs> Uh, that's a big question. But my ideal would be that, you know, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and then when I was educated at Stanford University in the 70s, our idea of what normal was on the bell curve was this narrow band of normal and then the outliers on the left and the right that were the abnormal. I mean, it was kind of a simple black and white model of the universe. And what we've discovered in the last 30, 40 years is that the diverse domain of human identity and development is so broad. It's it's so wide. And there's a little bit of outlier on, on either side. And there certainly is pathology. Bodies get sick, minds get sick, and they heal with help from the people who care around that person. But normal is so diverse. And so my idea of a comprehensive commitment to trans competence is really a comprehensive commitment to diversity and to the recognition that human communities of so many kinds, and there's so many ways that we love, and there's so many ways that we believe, and that with kind of a common foundation of respect, acceptance, inclusivity, with always having the frame of mind that I don't know the final answers. I must always be prepared to hear something new. And so it's kind of philosophical, maybe, but that's my model for a trans 
competent medical practice would be that they're just part of the family. Yes. Dr. Robertson, <laughs> I am so delighted that you were able to join us for this fascinating and enlightening conversation on LGBT patient care. Thank you it's been, once again. Oh, it's been my pleasure. My pleasure, Simeon. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks so much for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.